So thank you and keep up the good work. Keep coming. There are a number of uh, films, movies that, uh, that I like, but there is one in, in particular that's kind of a favorite of mine. It's a, a film made in the 1960s, probably not uh, all that well known other than to my family and a few close friends. Uh, it's called 300 Spartans. The film 300 Spartans was made in the 1960s, and it um, tells of the Battle of Thermopylae, which occurred in uh, 480 B.C., when a small contingent of Spartan soldiers, 300 of them to be precise, supported by a few other various Greek soldiers, stood back the might of the Persian Empire for several days. The Persian Empire was expanding westward and into Europe. And there at Thermopylae, there's a very narrow pass between the mountains and the sea in which a small group of men, 300 of men, could stand back an army of a half a million. And so they did that. They stood that army back for, as I say, several days. But in the end, all of the Spartans were killed. They remained loyal and obedient to their king all the way to the end and were promised throughout their time there that the other Greek states would send supporting soldiers, but they never showed up and thus they stayed at their post and they all died. Sounds like a depressing film, huh? Actually, it's one of those films that rallies a young man to go out and do something noble. Open your Bibles to... uh, Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to look at a section of Scripture this morning that will also rally you to do something noble. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. If you're working in those pew Bibles this morning, it's page 1227 in the pew Bible. Here the church at Philadelphia also remains true and faithful to their king. They are obedient to Him, but their final reward is not destruction, but rescue. Not destruction, but rescue. Listen to what John writes, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one takes your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more, and I will write upon him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are part two in looking at this message to the church at Philadelphia. Last time we worked our way through verses 7, 8, and 9, and I will just review quickly what we covered in order to get you up to speed. First off, with regard to the city of Philadelphia, we noted a number of things, several of which bear repeating because they, they come directly into understanding the, the, the content of this message to the church. We noted for you last time that the city of Philadelphia was also known as the gateway to the east. That it was a city that was of relatively recent origin founded in the 2nd century B.C. and planted for the specific purpose to be a missionary city in order to spread Greek culture and language 
inland into Turkey, into its high and central plateau. And so this particular city served a strategic purpose, a missionary purpose. We also noted for you last time that the city had a number of advantages, but it had one significant disadvantage. And that was that it lay upon an active fault line. That seismic activity was a frequent occurrence in, in this part of western Turkey. And indeed, the city of Philadelphia itself in AD 17 was completely leveled by a massive earthquake. The aftershocks of which were so severe and frightening that it, it caused a significant portion of the inhabitants to flee the city and to, and to forsake trying to rebuild it, taking up residence in the outskirts in various huts, cabins. And so here was this city located strategically for a purpose in which they fulfilled most admirably, converting central Turkey to the Greek way of life in only a little over a century, but also a city that was frequently devastated by earthquakes. It is to this city, small and insignificant really in the general scheme of things, that Christ writes through the Apostle John his sixth letter. And we are going to look at this letter again this morning, and we noted as we've been noting all along, there are five facets to each communication that Christ gives to His church and we've laid them out for you in your handout. We're going to pick up the last couple of those facets this morning. And the reason we're doing this series, again, to be reminded, is so that we might know from God's point of view for what makes a great church. How do we discern what makes for a great church? We'll do it by looking through the eyes of Christ as He evaluates His churches. So again, by way of review, Christ's command in verse 7 there, Jesus identifies himself by three particular titles that, that emphasize his character and his position. In verse 7, first we said the one who is set apart, he who is holy, literally the Holy One. And this is a messianic title and a title that communicates one who is devoted and dedicated to the Lord and set apart for his service. Jesus is that Messiah. He is the set apart one. Secondly, he has for us here in verse 7 that he is the reliable one. He says, who is true? The true one. He is the trustworthy one. He is the genuine one. He is the one that can be relied upon in time of need. So he is the one set apart as Messiah. He is the one who is reliable and true. And third, he communicates that he is the sovereign one, right? Verse 7, who has the key of David. He is the sovereign one, key denoting authority. He is the one who possesses the key of the house of David. He is the one who opens and no one can shut. He is the one who shuts and no one can open. He is the one who has access through the doorway into the Davidic kingdom, into the, into the kingdom of Messiah, into the millennial kingdom, into the eternal state. Jesus is the door through which we enter. And he says here that he is not only the door, but he controls access to the door. And so Jesus comes to this beleaguered congregation. We noted last time that that uh, down in verse nine, the synagogue of Satan, talking about the opposition of the Jewish local Jewish community to the church here. We also noted last time that this Gentile community was uh, given over to uh, the worship of Dionysius, the, uh, the god of wine, and that there was there was drunkenness and debauchery that characterized this local uh, culture. And so here is this little church oppressed by Gentiles, persecuted by Jews. And Jesus comes to this little church and he says to them, I am the real guy. I am the real Messiah. I am the genuine and trustworthy one. I am the one who is sovereign over all that is going on. I am the one who controls entrance into the messianic kingdom. I am the one who will bring Success to this little church. I am the one who will enable you to change your culture. Regardless of the obstacles you face, I am the one who overcomes. And so he encourages this little congregation. And he goes from encouragement to verse 8 to commendation. He, com he commends them here and he, he does so again in, in a three 
part fashion. We spent a fair amount of time last time looking at verses 8 and 9 and, and dealing with some grammatical, syntactical issues in the text. I'm not going to go through that again. You would have to get the, the CD or go online and listen if you want to go back through that again. But basically what he tells this little church is he praises them for their deeds. He has praised for their deeds. He says you have little power. You are insignificant. You are small and insignificant in your community, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That is his praise. His praise for the little church is that you stay fast to the word of God. You hold to the scriptures and you do not deny me in the face of opposition. For that, he commends them. Beyond that, he promises them disciples, we noted. Again, verse 8, Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. Down to verse 9, Behold, I will cause, literally give, give some of the synagogue of Satan. That is, I will give you fruit out of your persecutors. From among this Jewish community that is so uh, steadfastly opposed to you, that is, that is dealing with you in such a hateful fashion, you will actually see the fruit of conversion, he promises. A promise of disciples. You are little, you are insignificant, you are being persecuted and harassed in every direction, but I am going to give you, I, the one who control access to the door of the Davidic kingdom, I am going to give you fruit amongst your persecutors. This is a tremendous encouragement for this little church. And third, and that's where we pick it up now, third, he offers them a pledge of deliverance. A pledge of deliverance. By the way, we noted last time, right, that there was no condemnation for this church. Remember that? No condemnation nor correction needed. That this church was, was fully commended by Christ. But he offers them now the third part of his commendation, a pledge of deliverance. And it's here for us in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There is a pledge of deliverance for this church. Now, the best way to unpack this, this pledge of deliverance, I think, is to begin to look at it clause by clause. Notice he says here that you have kept the word of my perseverance. And then he says, I also will keep you. He's communicating to this church here that because they have patiently obeyed for his sake, because they have endured, that's the, that's the idea here, the, the word of perseverance, my command to you to endure for my sake, because you have kept it, you have obeyed, you have endured, therefore I will do something for you. I will keep you from the hour of trial, he says. You have kept me, I will now keep you. There is a direct correspondence going on here. And that leads us to some questions as we try to pull this apart. And that is, what is the hour of testing that Christ is speaking about here? Look again, verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of testing. What is the hour of testing that he is promising to keep them from? And beyond that, in what sense is it a worldwide testing? Again, look at verse 10. I'll keep you from the hour of testing, the hour that is to come upon the whole world. So in what sense can it be a worldwide hour of testing? Third, how does this promise apply to this church at Philadelphia? What is the, what is the point of the promise for them? And then finally... This promise of protection, is it a promise to preserve them in the midst of this hour? Or is it a promise to, to uh, remove them from the hour? Is it a promise of, of uh, protection within? Or is it a promise of removal from? These are the questions that we want to try to answer this morning. And so let me begin to pull this verse apart for you. And kind of uh, we'll do a little inductive Bible study, I guess you'd say, as we look at this together. You're going to have to follow me on this. All right, so sit up straight in your pews. That's good. I like posture. All right, sit up straight and pay attention and follow along. And we will begin to pull this apart 
and see if we can figure out what exactly is being promised here. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you. Tereo is the verb translated keep. All right, tereo, and the verb means to keep, which means we've got a good translation here. To keep, it also means to protect or to preserve. All right, to keep, to protect, or to preserve in the sense of watchful care. Watchful care. So the, what Jesus is promising this church here is some mode of protection or preservation during this upcoming hour. It is a promise of deliverance and it is a promise based on the fact that they have already passed the test. Again, look at it. He calls it an hour of testing and he says, I will keep you from it because you have kept, beginning of verse 10, do you see that? Because you have kept, I will keep. So whatever the test is, and we don't know yet, but whatever the test is, they are going to be kept from this test because they have already passed their test. They've already passed theirs. So, tereo, I will keep. Look again at verse 10, where he says, I will keep you from something. I will keep you from something. A Greek preposition, ek. E-K, ek. All right, and it has a primary meaning of out of or away from. I will keep you, I will protect you, I will preserve you out of something or away from something. And so what we would, what we would understand from this is there is a promise of deliverance or movement away from what? The hour of testing. All right, I will keep you out of, I will keep you away from the hour of testing. If Jesus were communicating here the primary uh, idea of, of being shielded during an hour of testing, there are other Greek prepositions available to him that he could have used, such as en meaning in or dia meaning through. So he could have very clearly said that I will keep you, I will preserve you, I will protect you through the hour of testing or I will protect or preserve you in the hour of testing. Instead, he communicates to them the primary meaning of out of or away from. Okay, now what we're doing here is um, we are building a legal case. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to just amass the evidence a little bit at a time and build the case. So that's why I said you have to follow along. All right. So we're building our case. Now, the uh, verb tereo and the preposition ek appear together only one other place in the New Testament. So we need to go to that other place in the New Testament where they appear, and that is in John 17 and verse 15. All right, so go ahead and turn to John 17 and verse 15, which is the only other place in the New Testament where tereo ek appear together. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 15. And here he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Interesting, isn't it? Here, it's clear that Jesus is specifically saying, I do not ask you, Father, to take the disciples out of the world, but to keep them from the presence of the evil one. Keep them safe from the power of the evil one while they are still in the world. Now, some would argue that based on the usage here in John 15 and it being the only other place in the New Testament where the verb preposition combination occur, that what is being communicated back in Revelation 3, go ahead and turn back there, is a similar commitment. And that therefore in Revelation 3 verse 10, Christ is promising to keep the Philadelphian church safe during the coming of hour of testing, not by removing them, but protecting them within it. And at first glance, that's a pretty persuasive argument. However, however, there are some contract or contextual differences between John 17, 15, Revelation 3, 10, that they create enough difference, I think, to offset the grammatical similarities between John 17, Revelation 3.10, and Tereo Ek. Alright? So here's what they are. First, 
In John 17:15, the preservation is from the power of a person, Satan himself, while in Revelation 3:10, it is deliverance from a period of time. One is protection from the power of a person. The other is deliverance from a period of time. Hold on to that thought. Secondly, in John 17, the disciples are already in the midst of evil. Satan is already ruling in this world, right? He is the, like the lion seeking someone to devour. In Revelation 3.10, the hour of testing is still future. Okay? So just hang on to those things. One is deliverance from, from the power of a person. The other is deliverance from an hour or a period of time. And the other, they're already in the midst of it. And the other one, it is yet to come. It is future. So the surface similarities, grammatically, I think, are not quite as strong as they might first appear because of the contextual differences. Let's go back here and keep looking now. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, Revelation 3.10, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those upon the earth. The emphasis here is on deliverance from a period of time. The hour. Okay, it's repeated twice. Deliverance from the hour. They are not being delivered from a trial. They are being delivered from a period of time in which trials occur. That is a huge difference. And it's significant enough that, we, that we're going to continue to camp on that. All right? The only way to deliver somebody from a period of time is to, is to uh, keep them or prevent them from entering into it in the first place. Let me see if I can illustrate it. If you had a, a very unpleasant meeting scheduled tomorrow morning at work, okay, at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning at work, you're going to have to go into a conference room and face a really angry boss. Okay? The only way to... Uh, to save you, to deliver you, to keep you out of that meeting is for you to call in sick. All right? Is for you to call in and say, I'm sick. I won't be there. Right? Be delivered from the hour of the meeting. Not walk into the meeting, but to be, but to be delivered out of it. To avoid it all together. And so that's what is being communicated here. And notice it as well. He says it's the hour. Do you see that? Look again at the text. The hour of testing. That means the use of the, of the definite article here means that it is a particular hour that's in view. Not just any hour, not just any hour of testing, not just any period of, of testing, but a particular period of testing. This is not a time of general stress or, or even personal stress for the Philadelphian church. It is a time of a special hour of testing and an hour that is familiar to them. He doesn't define it for them. Do you notice? He just says, I will keep you from the hour, the one and only hour of testing. Now, this hour of testing, the horror of it all, will be revealed for them in the next vision that begins in chapter 4, right? And carries them through all the way to chapter 19. The period of time, the hour of the testing that they are going to be delivered from is the testing of the seals, trumpets, and bowls of Revelation 6 through 19. This hour, by the way, also, it says, is a worldwide hour. That supports the notion that this is a very particular hour. This is an hour that is not just to come upon the Philadelphian church, but is to come upon the whole world. It's a one and only hour. And there is only one hour or one period of time. And I keep using the word hour because the text does, but it's, it's speaking, when it says, use the word hour, it's speaking of a period of time. There is only one period of time known throughout the Scriptures that can rise to the level of something that comes upon the whole world. And it is known by many names. It is known, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, as Daniel's 70th week. It is also known in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7 as the time of Jacob's trouble. It is known in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 as a time of distress. 
It is known in Joel 2.31 as the day of the Lord. And it is known in Matthew 24, verse 21 and Revelation 7.14, just to give you a pair of verses there, as the great tribulation. The great tribulation. So he is speaking to this church and he is saying, because you have shown yourself faithful, you have kept my word, you have remained obedient to me in the face of persecution, I will protect you and keep you out of the tribulation. The great tribulation. Daniel's 70th week. Jacob's trouble. All right, let's review the bidding here for a minute and see if I can gather up the stragglers okay what have we what have we learned so far you ready number one they're going to be protected from something they're going to be protected from something number two the protection comes by removal the protection comes by removal number three the something is a time period the something they're going to be protected from is a time period and number four the time period is the tribulation tribulation all right let's keep milking this verse notice it says again that it's an hour of testing do you see that an hour of testing perazzo is the is the word in the greek and it essentially has two basic meanings the first basic meaning is that it's used of testing people to determine or demonstrate or expose what kind of people they are 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 is the use of the verb parazo, okay? So there it has the same idea of, of revealing what's inside of somebody. What are they really like? It is also used to tempt someone or entice someone to sin. James 1, verses 13 and 14. God does not do this. God does not tempt people to sin. But God does... Try people to expose what lies within, to demonstrate to all who look on what lies within them, to expose the inner person. So here back in Revelation 3.10, the promise of testing, right? The hour of testing is an hour that is the purpose of which is to determine, to demonstrate or expose the kind of people being tested. I will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour of exposure, okay, that is about to come upon the whole earth. Notice also that it is future, right? About to come. Hasn't gotten here yet. It is still to come. And it is literally an hour that will come upon the whole inhabited earth. That is, it will focus on all people upon the earth to test those, end of verse 10, those who dwell upon the earth. That is to test those, to expose those who are hostile to Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, the expression, those who dwell on the earth, is used ten other times in the book of Revelation. And every other time it's used, it refers to the, the people on the earth that are hostile towards Christ and His followers. Alright? I'll give them to you if you like. Revelation 6.10 Revelation 8.13 Revelation 11.10 is used twice. Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13.12. Revelation 13.14 used twice there. Revelation 17.2 and Revelation 17.8. If that was too fast for you, get the tape. Okay? And you can pick them up or else do it on your own and get a concordance and look them up. Alright? But we'll just go ahead and I'll look at one for you at least. And that's chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those that are hostile to Christ and His people. So this hour of testing, this hour of exposure is to come on those people who are hostile to Christ. That gives us a purpose for the testing, right? It, it tells us what the testing is all about. What is the tribulation period all about? It is to expose what lies in the heart of man. It is to make known, to demonstrate the inner quality of those who dwell on the earth, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Now, the church at Philadelphia is exempt from this exposure. Why? Why? Look at verse 8. 
Because I what? I know your deeds. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Their inner character and quality does not need to be exposed. It has already been demonstrated. And it has been demonstrated in their fidelity to the word of God and their loyalty to Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. So it is not necessary for them to go through this period of exposure or testing because they have already been tested and found faithful. They've already demonstrated the inner quality. And by implication, by the way, their deliverance, right? He says, I will keep you from the hour, comes with the return of Christ. Verse 11, you see it? I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. So with the return of Christ, mentioned right here in the very next verse, their deliverance will come. There is a worldwide scope to this promised testing. It's all over the world, right? Also, the testing has not yet occurred. It is about to come. And it is also an open invitation, right? Verse 13, he was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just Philadelphia, but all churches. So that says to us that the promise been given here in verse 10 is not just for the church at Philadelphia. It is for all churches that imitate the church at Philadelphia. All Christians who are like those Philadelphians. They too will escape, will be delivered from, Tereoak will be kept out of this worldwide time of exposure. Why? Because they will already have been tested and exposed in their own lives when they follow after the model of the Philadelphian Christians. Therefore, I am persuaded that the best exegesis of this verse says that the believers, those that are the followers of Jesus Christ, will not go through the tribulation period. Okay? This is a verse that evidences the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, maybe you know a little bit about that. Maybe you don't know anything about that. Maybe that's something that's kind of a question in your mind. Maybe it's never even hit your radar screen at all. But this verse is, a, is a, I believe, a strong verse that evidences the, uh, the position, uh, position of this church, which is the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And in fact, I got so excited about this that I've decided that next week we're going to uh, take a little uh, rabbit trail or a little uh, excursus. And I'm going to come back to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And, and I want to give you all, I'll show you a whole bunch of other reasons why that we're convinced that it is the proper understanding. Okay. So uh, we'll, we'll, very, we'll, we'll widely range outside of Revelation 3.10 next week and, and try to bring some more answers to this whole particular subject. Now, how does this promise apply to the church at Philadelphia? That was one of our earlier questions. How does this promise apply to the church at Philadelphia? Right? Because they weren't delivered out of the tribulation. Isn't that true? And Jesus hasn't come back yet. Right? So in what sense is this a real promise to them? Or, in, and let me just add on to that, in what sense is it a real promise to any Christian, right, any church who has an ear to hear, to, to any other Christian who dies before Christ returns? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because now I have an answer for you. Okay? And the answer is that had they been alive at the time of the return of Jesus Christ, they would have been delivered. But since they died before he came, they are delivered from the tribulation by their death. But lest you think they somehow miss out, the Apostle Paul wrote right in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 that when Christ descends, the dead in Christ shall what? Rise first. Okay, they will rise first. And so, therefore, this church and all subsequent believers down through the centuries who have followed in the path of this church, right, and have kept His Word and have persevered in the face of persecution, will receive the promise that when He comes, they will escape the tribulation and they will rise first. Okay? So, what does that mean? It means Christ, is, His return is imminent. It is, it is close at hand. It is right at the door. But for every single generation in, in which He does not come, the promise remains 
true. It means true to them. All right? The dead in Christ rise first. So Jesus has promised this church deliverance. That's the third part of their accommodation. And now he gives them a challenge. All right? There is a challenge in verses 11 to 13 that accompany this promise. And the challenge is to persevere. To persevere. Verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. The coming of the Lord in His power and glory is to finish His great work of redemption. Alright? That's the keynote theme of the book of Revelation. You can see it in chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, even so. Amen. He is coming to finish that which has been set in motion. And He is coming quickly, it says, or He says, verse 11. That's the idea, that word communicates the idea of suddenness or unexpectedness. It is not necessarily communicating something immediate. So he's not saying, I am coming tomorrow. I am coming next week. I'm coming in a year. I'm coming in 2,000 years. That's not what he's, what he's communicating. What he's saying is that I am coming suddenly. I'm coming unexpectedly. You are to be looking for my coming. And that coming is the note of encouragement for them to hang, fa- hang on, hold fast what you have. They are to persevere. They are to hold on. Especially against, look at the verse again, those that would seek to take their crown. Those that would seek to tra- take their crown. I think in context, it is those Jewish people that are hostile to them and the Gentile community at, a large, at large around them. They would seek to take their crown. Not for themselves, but in the sense of depriving them of the crown. You can see an illustration of this over in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. Over in Revelation 6-4, there is the, uh, the, um, the horseman who rides the red horse, right? It says, And the red horse went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. The idea is that not that the red horseman took peace and kept it himself. The idea was he deprived the world of peace. The same thing is being communicated back here in in verse 11 of chapter 3, those who will take your crown, it's not that they're trying to take it for themselves. They're trying to make sure that you don't get it. They're trying to deprive you of something. A crown, stephanos, a, a wreath, that which was given to the victor in the Greek games. All right? The crown is not specifically identified for us here, but over in Revelation 2, in verse 10, it is identified there. So if it is the same crown, then we, then we know what it is. Right? And the crown there is the, called the crown of life. That is the crown that is life. And so I think it's the same crown being talked about as over here in verse 10, chapter 3. And what he's saying is you hang on. You, I'm coming soon. I'm coming unexpectedly. I'm coming, coming suddenly. Persevere. Don't let anybody take the crown of life or don't let anybody take eternal life from you. You are to continue in the faith until you receive everlasting life. Now, let me see if I can offer an illustration of that. Because you are saying to yourselves, well, I thought that once I was saved, right, once I become a child of God, that I couldn't lose my salvation. And that's the right answer. You can't. So what is going on here? Well, he is telling them to persevere. And this is not the only place. Throughout the Scriptures, there are warnings to the followers of Christ, the followers of God, that they are to persevere. And the illustration that I can think of is, uh, has to do with my grandchildren. When I, uh, when I are, am crossing the street with one of my grandchildren in tow, I put down my hand, right, and they hold my hand. And what is the first thing that I say to them? You don't know, but I'll tell you. What I say to them is to hold tight to Grampy's hand. Hold on to Grampy's hand while we cross the street. Now, my question for you is, is does the security of my grandchild crossing the street depend on their grip on my hand or my grip on their hand? The obvious answer, right? 
It is my grip on them, not their grip on me. Yet I still tell them to hold on to me because it's part of the process. And Jesus, in a similar way, does the same thing. He is holding on to us. That is the message of Romans 8. A very clear message. Romans 8, 35 to 39. What can separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives a big, long litany. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's his conclusion. All right. But still, he says to the believer that part of the means by which you are preserved is for you to hang on. So hang on. I'm coming quickly. Hang on. Verse 11. So that no one deprive you of your reward. That is eternal life. He who overcomes, verse 12, talking about the believer, right? We've said this over and over. The overcomer is the Christian and not a special class of Christian. It is the Christian. He who overcomes now receives a reward. And what he is, what he'll communicate by this reward is the stability and permanence of their relationship with Christ. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. Later on in this book, chapters 21 and, and uh, 22, we come to understand that the, that the, uh, the temple is another name for the, the heavenly city. So what he's saying to them is a metaphor, and, and, it, and it, we would even use the common terminology of heaven would be all right. What he is saying to them is that, is that he who overcomes, the believer, the follower, the one who perseveres to the end, I will make him a pillar in heaven. And he will not go out from it anymore. Now, he's not going to make you a literal pillar in heaven, right? He's not going to turn you into a pile of rock. Okay? He might turn you into a pile of salt if you look back over your shoulder. But he's not going to turn you into a pile of rock. So what is he communicating? Well, then for that, we go all the way back to the history of the church at Philadelphia. And remember, I told you that this was a church located in a community that suffered frequent seismic activity. And so when seismic activity would come and buildings would fall down, what would tend to stand would be the pillars. All right. The pillars would be left, but everything else would fall down. The temple might collapse, but the pillars of the temple would stand. And so he's communicating to these people here that there is a there, there is a uh, an assurance to them of their continuance with Christ. Throughout all eternity, because of their loyal obedience to Christ, they will endure. Beyond that, he says, uh, you not need to go out from it anymore. You see that verse 12? Remember what I told you happened? The aftershocks come in again and again and again to the point where they got so rattled that they fled the city. He's saying that in, you know, in the eternal state here, when you enter into the Davidic kingdom, I will make you rock solid like a pillar in there and you'll never have to leave it. You'll never have to leave it. You will be permanent residents of the Davidic kingdom. He's communicating here to a shaken minority community that is under incredible pressure that you will not only have impact on your community, but if you hang on to the end, I will deliver you from the worldwide cataclysm that's coming and I will make you permanent and stable in your residence in glory. Now that's a pretty exciting promise. Beyond that, he gives him a, a threefold assurance, right? I will write upon you some things. Not only will I make you stable like a pillar, not only will you not have to leave, but I will write some things on you that will forever identify you with God. I will ascribe upon you that you, number one, belong to God. I will write upon him the name of my God. That being, the name of my God is the equivalent of belonging to him. I will write on you, again, figuratively, not literally. He's not going to come along and put a mark on you on your head, right? But he's going to mark you as one that belongs to God. There'll be no mistaking it. Right? You'll forever bear the mark that says you belong to God. Beyond that, that I will mark you out as a citizen. You see that? In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now, that couldn't be any more explicit. That's talking about, right, the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21-22, where the Davidic kingdom flows into the eternal state. You will enter into the Davidic kingdom and you will flow right into the eternal state. And you will be a permanent residence. You will have eternal citizenship in heaven. 
Now, for someone who lived in the Roman world, citizenship was a big deal. It conferred privileges upon them that were unavailable to those who were not citizens. So to these first century believers to have be told that you will have um, residency and citizenship in God's eternal city is an amazing promise. You belong to God. You have a permanent citizenship in the city of God. And number three, you are related to me, that is to Christ, and, may, and you will bear my name, new name. Do you see it? In the verse 12, my new name. What is he talking about by a new name? I think what he's trying to say is, is that uh, uh, later on in uh, Revelation 19:12 he talks about his new name. And I think what he's trying to communicate is that now we only have a, a partial understanding of who Christ is in his incarnate state. But when we see him face to face, 1 John 3, 2, we will see him like he is and we will have a better and fuller understanding of this great incarnate one. And we will now bear his new name. That is that we will be fully and rightly related to him in, the, in a full orbed sense. We'll understand the significance of who he really is. The promise to this church over and over again is hang on, I'm coming, and when I get there, I'm going to deal with the problems and I'm going to make you stable. I'm going to make you stable. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a promise not just to the church of Philadelphia. It's a promise to you and it's a promise to me, right? Now, we've gone through a lot of technical stuff, I guess you'd say in order to, to try to unpack this. And you know, hopefully your eyes haven't glazed over too much in that process. And you know, the studying of, of, of uh, doctrine and theology can become just purely academic. Just to, you know, I want to understand so I have an intellectual grasp of all of this. But it should warm our hearts. And this should warm our heart too. Jesus is offering this to this little beleaguered church as a means of encouragement for them to confront their society, their community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the opposition that they receive. What he is saying to them is that you continue fast. I will give you some fruit among it, but you continue fast in it and I will take care of the rest. I'm going to deliver you from an unspeakable horror. I'm going to grant you a permanent residence with my Father. That ought to thrill and motivate anyone. Right? The mission statement of Foothill Bible Church is to speak to me. Get your bulletin out. Okay? It's right there under the title where it says Foothill Bible Church. What is the mission statement? To diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him. Why in the world would anybody do that? Why would you put yourself in a position that is going to invite hostility upon you? Why in the world would you take up arms in a figurative sense, not literally here, but, but take up arms in a spiritual figurative sense and confront a community that you know is going to bring back upon you heartache and tribulation and persecution? Personal distress. Why would you do that? Why do you want to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him? The answer lies in this text. Because if you do these things and continue in them, then I will deliver you. Your, your, your inner character will be tested and revealed and I will deliver you from the worldwide testing that is coming upon the earth an unspeakable horror. And I will make you a permanent citizen of my kingdom. That's a pretty good bargain. That is a pretty good bargain. Temporal pain now, eternal glory later. And by the way, verse 11, I am coming, what? Quickly. You don't know how long the bargain lasts. He may call you to live a lifetime as he did these people. As the choir sang in the midnight cry, he may come tonight. He may come tonight. We are to live the anticipation of a sudden, unexpected, any time return when Jesus Christ will balance the scales. That should thrill your heart. That should motivate you to ministry. I trust 
that it does. Let's pray. Father God, there is a vividness to this uh, letter. Even though it is 20 centuries old, it is right up to date. It is modern. It speaks to where we are right now as individuals and as a group of individuals, a local body of Christ. For we live in a world, our Father, in which we are small and insignificant. Surrounded by those that are hostile to Christ and His Gospel. We live in a day and an age where proclaiming the fidelity, our fidelity to the Word of God and ordering our lives according to it is considered quaint by some and foolish by others and even dangerous by others. The idea of holding to Jesus Christ and Him only to proclaiming in the marketplace of ideas that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me is considered hate speech. And so our Father, we feel the temptation and pressure to be silent. To hunker down. To pass out the storm. Let it just Go by us. Keep our mouths shut. Duck our heads low. Be invisible to the world. Maybe they won't pick on us. Maybe they won't call us out. Maybe they won't ask us in school, what do you think about that? Or around the water cooler at work, what do you think about that? And thus we won't be forced into a situation where we have to either speak or deny Christ. But our Father, as we read about this church, what we see is that that's not the way they handled it. When there was all the reason in the world to hunker down, keep your mouth shut, get along, go along, get along, they refused. And they clung tenaciously to Your Word and they endured the consequent persecution. And You promised them an impact on their community escape from the unspeakable horrors of the Great Tribulation and a permanent, stable citizenship in glory. They traded that which was temporal for that which was eternal. Their Father, the same bargains available to us. May You persuade us deep down inside that it's worth it. And may You enable us to diligently pursue Jesus Christ and courageously proclaim His name regardless of the personal cost. Not for our glory, but for His and His alone. Amen.